Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The problem with the religious leaders, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, and it remains a problem for many today, is that they understood that they'd been sinners, but somehow they'd gotten to the place where they thought they were no longer sinners. No, now that they were keeping the law and they were doing these things and they weren't doing those things, In today's broadcast, we begin a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled Lost and Found. We're in Luke chapter 15, and this message will cover the entire chapter. Now, we're gonna be considering Jesus' parables about the lost. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So let's listen in. And by the way, happy Friday. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Title of our study this morning, Lost and Found. Luke 15, three of Jesus' most familiar parables. That of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The context for Jesus' teaching here, as always, is exceedingly important. In fact, it's possible to read this chapter and glean from it to learn a lot about the heart of God and the need of man and, and what he wants from us, requires of us, and actually miss what Jesus is trying to relate, the main thing. So we're going to see a lot of practical application for our lives and some personal challenge, I'm sure, but, but we don't want to miss the main thing. And we actually get that in the context. And the context of all of this is in verses, well, one through three, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. What's happening here is Jesus is having a meal. And, well, as always, the notorious, nefarious sinners are drawn to him. There was something about him, though he didn't compromise the message. And he certainly didn't come down to their level tempted in all ways, yet without sin, we're told, sinners still felt attracted to Jesus. And then we have, well, really two groups of sinners here, not the tax collectors and sinners. They're one group. Um, in fact, you know, it's interesting, tax collectors and sinners drawn to Jesus. It's possible some of you are tax collectors. I've never met one who will say he is. And, and, uh, but you need to know that, that tax collectors in the first century weren't nearly as popular as they are today. And uh, that's because they were working for the Roman government and often taking advantage of their own people in the process. Many of them were dishonest, not all of them, of course. But the Romans said, hey, here's how much we want. Here's how much we need. And then you could really collect as much as you could get out of people. And so tax collectors, not all that popular. Again, when, when the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, accuse Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners, it's a bit humorous if you think it through. And here's why. 
If Jesus hadn't eaten with sinners, he would have had to eat all his meals alone. I mean, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And they knew it. You see, that's the craziest part of this. The problem with the religious leaders, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, and it remains a problem for many today, is that they understood that they'd been sinners, but somehow they'd gotten to the place where they thought they were no longer sinners. No, now that they were keeping the law and they were doing these things and they weren't doing those things, they thought they were acceptable to God based on their own merits. And, and the reality is none of us are acceptable or accepted except in Christ Jesus. And so he wants us to see that and he wanted them to see it. Well, as they complained, and, and I think those words, this man, they're words of contempt, and certainly they had contempt for those Jesus was welcoming and, and receiving and fellowshipping and eating with. So Jesus spoke this parable to them. Now, all of the people at the table and in the room could hear the parables. So he's speaking, and all can listen, and all can glean, and all can learn, but his target here, it's the religious leaders. It's the self-righteous, critical condemning leaders who look down on the regular old run-of-the-mill sinners. Well, he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. What Jesus does is he says, hey, listen, how do you deal with a lost sheep? And they should have connected the dots immediately because throughout the Old Testament, God likened himself to a shepherd. He likened his people to a flock to sheep. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's throughout the New Testament. And so he says, well, listen, if you have 100 sheep and one wanders off, don't you leave the 99 to pursue that one lost and wandering sheep? The reality is all of them would have said absolutely why. Sheep were very valuable. And, and, and not just that, if you have 100, you're not going to say, well, I still have 99. No, you care for that sheep. And so he asked them a question that, that should have helped them make a spiritual connection. But even if it didn't, it gave him an opportunity to start to, to, to bridge that gap with them. He says, when you go searching for it, you seek, you find, you rejoice. And then in verse six, he says, and then there's a celebration. You call your friends, your family, your neighbors together and you say, hey, rejoice with me for my sheep that, that was lost is, is found. And then he applies it. And, and you have to know that this is the one part where they wouldn't have connected the dots. Because he says, I say to you, likewise, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, he can see that he's likening the lost sheep to a sinner. What they can't see is that they're lost sheep. They're right there with him, thinking they're serving God, representing God. 
Nevertheless, they're lost sheep. And he says there's more joy in heaven over the, the redemption of one lost sheep. Well, those others at the table, they were lost sheep. And, and there's a celebration as Jesus was connecting with and loving on them. As they're responding to him, only these self-righteous, critical religious leaders, they weren't able to join in the celebration. Well, we'll see something else that's rather interesting as we go through these three. In the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, well, it's clear the lost sheep can't find his way home. I don't know if you're aware sheep aren't like dogs. They don't leave a trail that they can come back and find. And of course, you know, dogs can do that. I mean, they can go for miles and miles and find their way home. And you know how they mark the trail. But without going there, the, the, the reality is sheep just don't know. If they get lost, unless you go after them, they're going to stay lost. And so it's interesting that he would liken their return to repentance because, well, I, th I think that it's unlikely that a sheep can repent, but the sheep can be happy to be back home with its master. Well, throughout, and I made mention of it, the Old Testament, this image of shepherd and sheep. In fact, the first place we find a sheep mentioned, a lamb mentioned, that that picture is, is in Genesis 4, where Cain and Abel both bring an offering to the Lord. Cain, of course, brings the offering of the ground. He was a farmer, and, uh, but Abel brings, according to Hebrews, a more excellent sacrifice. Excellent in that it was what God required. And, you know, so he's responding without faith. It's impossible to please God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Abel had to be responding in faith and in obedience and bringing a blood sacrifice, a lamb. It's the very beginning of, of a process that will eventually bring us to the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. And so the, the, the glory of this concept, and, and again, they should have been able to put it together. The father's a shepherd, the, the flock his sheep. And so you see this imagery, not just with Cain and Abel. And by the way, if you're unaware, Cain is rejected, Abel accepted. Why? Because Abel responded in obedience by faith to God's command to bring a substitutionary sacrifice. And in doing so, he acknowledged sinful man cannot approach a holy God apart from a blood sacrifice. The image continues. Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful and poetic of, of the many, many psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But it all begins with the Lord is my shepherd. We used to sing that. We should revive that song. Isaiah 40, 11, we used to sing this too. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, we're told, was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began to teach and prepare his disciples to minister to them. So both in the old and in the new, we have this picture of the, the caring shepherd and then the, the needy sheep. By the way, Jesus is identified for us as the good shepherd, the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep, for his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus says. So, so we're looking back at the cross. We can see it's a done deal, an accomplished work, a finished work. It is finished, Jesus proclaimed from the cross. So, so as the good shepherd, he dies for our sins. As the great shepherd, he lives. In fact, let me read it to you. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As the great shepherd, he lives and works in us and through us, transforming us into the people he's always intended us to be. And then... As the chief shepherd, and I love this one, Peter speaks to the elders, those who are shepherding. And, and by the way, if you're a parent, you're a shepherd of your little flock. If, if uh, you know, you're serving here, you're a shepherd alongside of us. We're all under shepherds. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. But he mentions it as the chief shepherd. He'll be coming again. And when he does, when he appears, he'll bring the crown of glory that does not fade away. And those of you who studied through Revelation, you know that we take those crowns that are given to us and we cast them at his feet and we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Well, the glorious picture of the, the loving and caring shepherd, it points us to the heart of the Father and it should have stirred the hearts of all who were there listening in. Well, he comes to his second parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is more joy in heaven or in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents." The historical background is helpful here. Of course, these parables, they transcend time and geography and culture. I mean, we may not have sheep, but we can relate to losing something that's valuable to us, searching for it, rejoicing that we find it, celebrating with others, over finding it. And then he says, hey, that's what's going on in heaven when any sinner repents. Now we get to this lost coin and it's helpful to know that married women in that day and in that culture often wore a headdress of 10 coins. And, and, and so it's very much like a wedding ring today for, for you married gals. And, and you know, to lose your wedding ring, that would be a disaster. In fact, if you've ever made the mistake of taking it off and setting it up there by the sink while you're, you know, doing the pots and pans, you don't want to bang it up. Just bang it up. It's gold. They can reshape it. But but listen, the deal is you don't want to risk it going down the drain. If you haven't done it, don't try it. Uh, just take my word for it. But but of course, a wedding ring, it's so valuable, not just because it's made of precious metal, but because of what it represents. 
And these coins represented something, not just wealth or not just if anything goes wrong, at least I got the coin. No, the, the reality is, is, is that, that it was a symbol of, of her relationship. And so when she loses a coin, it says she, she searches, she, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it. And, and having found it, she brings the celebration, gets her neighbors together. Rejoice with me. I found the peace which I lost. And again, likewise, I say to you, there's joy in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, now check this out again. Even as the lamb can't find himself, certainly the coin can't recover itself. In both cases, Jesus is trying to, to, to connect the dots, to, to make the parallel between what the father does when something's lost. He seeks, he searches, he finds, he rejoices, he celebrates, and he says, celebrate with me. And, and so far, everybody's celebrating until we get to, well, the third story. He says in verse 11, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, take note from the get-go, both brothers are getting what they have coming. It's a little unorthodox, a little unusual, though not illegal, for the younger brother to ask for his inheritance. But, but see, it said he divided to them. I wanted to make sure that everybody connects with that thought. The older brother got a double portion of the inheritance. So the fact that the younger brother asked for his ahead of time means now the older brother has his inheritance too. I guess that means dad's retired and maybe that's good for dad. But the bottom line is it's not illegal, but very unusual. It's sort of, well... And I don't want to read anything into it, but it's like the younger son looks and thinks, you know, dad's healthy and I want to go out while I'm young and, and explore and experience. And whatever he was thinking, he saw fulfillment out there somewhere. He, he couldn't see that here in my father's house, I have everything I need. I have a name. I have a family. I have a future. Everything that that that. God's purpose and plan for me, it's here. No, his vision was out there. And I'd like to suggest that happens to us, that, that we can start being so dissatisfied with what God's provided for us that we start thinking there has to be something better. There has to be something greater. In his case, he goes to his father and says, I want what I've got coming. I want my part of the inheritance. And the father gives it to him. Now, not after, not many days after, excuse me, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He wanders away. He wastes all that, that had been entrusted to his care. Of course, we're stewards of our inheritance. And, and now he's wasted his. It gets worse, though. When he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed swine. Not exactly the career he anticipated when he left home. You see, it's not really kosher to, to be dealing with pigs as a young Jewish man. And, and I mean, it, you, they didn't eat them and they didn't raise them and, and they were offended by them. And if you've ever, you know, watched those little things, you understand why. But anyway, it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. 
Now, we're going to see where the Lord's going with this, but, but let me just say there's a definite spiritual parallel for us because if we start thinking, hey, it must be more, there must be more, that has to be out there somewhere, and we start wandering away from the Lord. And Hebrews, as you go through the, the earlier chapters, you, you can see this, this uh, process of wandering away, drifting from the word and then doubting. And then it, it just one leads to another, to another, to another, till there's just despair and depression. And well, it's very similar to what we're reading here. But, but we can wander and then we can waste our inheritance. I mean, God has something for us and he's entrusted things to us. And, and what's the end result? We end up hungering. For us, it could just be a spiritual hunger just to get back to the word of God. For me personally, well, God worked in unique thing. And I think he did it with a lot of Calvary pastors. He, he knows us perfectly. And, and he's like, you know what? You're, you're going to drift unless I keep you close. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll make him a pastor. He'll have to be in the word all the time. He'll be accountable to all these people. There's no way to drift away because I got to stand before you. There's no way to continue without repenting because I can't stand and say God calls you to repent when I know it's God calls us to repent. So the, the reality is, is, is some of you may have wandered. You, you may have been wasting away and wasting your inheritance. And you're hungering for, for, well, just how it used to be. And that's what starts happening with this young man. Well, you've come to the right place if that's the case. He's going to come to his senses and realize, hey, things were a lot better in my father's house than I realized when I was back there at home. And by the way, first story, Jesus mentions repentance. Second story, Jesus mentions repentance. Third story, there's no mention of repentance. And here's why. Repentance is in the story. And we get to see what repentance really looks like. And we also get to see what repentance isn't. Repentance includes remorse, but is far more than remorse. That's the very first thing that happens. Verse 17, when he came to himself, we might use the phrase he came to his senses, but it actually makes sense that he says he came to himself. He realized who he was. He was the son of a father who, who had not just stuff, but, but it's where he belonged. It's... It's where his ties were. It's where his past was, where his future was. So he came to his senses. He came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? See, this is a change of mind. It's a re realization that, that I could be in a much better situation than the one I'm in. And it's also a realization that I got myself into this mess. And, and I got to tell you, that is the first step in repentance. But I've met many, many people over the years who have decided that the way they're living, the things they're doing are not only not productive, but counterproductive, self-destructive, destroying your health or your family, your relationships alienated the people you love and, and should be caring for and enjoying. And, and, and so if that's happened, well, he, he came to his senses. He came to himself. He realized, hey, servants in my dad's house are faring better than I am out here. 
And then the second step in repentance, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love this. He says, I will arise. And it's the second step. He, he purposes. He has a change of mind. He has a change of heart. Now, instead of, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to see and I'm going to experience and I'm going to be. It's I just want to go home and I'm going to go home. That, that's the second step. He purposes in his heart to return to his father and to his father's house. As we consider the different parables regarding the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost prodigal son, it's important to keep another verse from later in the book of Luke in mind. Luke 19.10 tells us, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In a world full of lost people, many of who are trying to find their own way, guided by where their hearts guide them and leaning on their own understanding, the reality is they will never find anything but death and separation from God. Why? Because it's God that does the seeking, and it's God that does the finding, and it's God that does the saving. What's the point? Well, when Jesus finds us, our salvation will always be on his terms and never our own. That is why when you hear someone tell you, I'm happy for you, that's your truth. My truth is different. You must realize those are the words of a person who is still lost and you are to pray for the Lord to find them. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.